0: Good morning, everyone. The reading today is from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. That's Habakkuk, chapter 1. If you're using the Blue Church Bibles, that's page 659. Habakkuk, chapter 1, from verse 1, page 659. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. Habakkuk's complaint. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, there is strife and conflict abounds, therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails, the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The Lord's answer, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their god. And then we're turning to Daniel, chapter 1, which is page 616 in the Blue Bibles. And we'll just read the first two verses. Daniel, chapter 1, page 616. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. This ends the reading of God's word.
1: Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you, Alice, for the reading. Uh, Some of you will remember last year we had um, a young man called Absalom in our church family from Uganda, and uh, he's now uh, studying at seminary in South Korea, and I was on the phone with him. We were exchanging voice notes last night. It was sort of one o'clock in the morning his time and six o'clock my time. Anyway, he just wanted to be in touch, and one of the things that he said really struck me, and that was that His one of the great encouragements he found here in our church family was the music and the worship, Um, that in contrast to so many of the songs and, and worship tunes that are used in other churches, they seem to him rather superficial by comparison, and he's deeply thankful for the thoughtfulness that goes into the choice of songs and the worship in this church. So I just thought I'd pass that on to you for your encouragement this morning. Won't you please keep Daniel chapter 1 open in front of you as we begin our new series under the title Courageous Christianity. And uh, I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for giving to us the scriptures We thank you that the scriptures are God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. And we ask that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely, needful, helpful, and wonderful. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone has said that the Bible is a medicine cabinet containing 66 different medicines. And what he means is that we can think of each one of the 66 books in the Bible as a specific spiritual medicine for treating a specific spiritual disease. Now, this morning is really an introduction to our series in the book of Daniel, and the agenda is terribly simple. I want to try and answer the question why study Daniel? What is the particular spiritual disease for which the book of Daniel is the perfect medicine? Because if we can answer that question successfully, then perhaps by God's grace we'll start to see that Daniel isn't simply a collection of great stories for kids with a few crazy visions thrown in at the end. It's far far more important than that. It's actually God's healing word for you and me today. And I can't actually think of a time when God's people have been in greater need of a clear healing word from God to help us make sense of everything that's going on all around us at the moment. I mean, just think of it. Uh, The consequences of COVID, uh, the cost of living crisis, load shedding, uh, the relentless attack on marriage and the family, church leaders around the world dividing over Christian basics. I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? And these are realities that are impacting all our lives at every level. And in tough times like these, there's always a temptation, isn't there, for us to slip into a negative frame of mind. And unless we know what to do with that, um, that negative frame of mind will cast a shadow over our entire outlook on life. And especially over our relationship with God, Because if we don't do anything about it, our relationship with the Lord can so very easily become formal and distant. And we find ourselves blaming our circumstances. And before we know it, we find that we've picked up a rather nasty dose of the if-only disease. So I'm sure that you've heard people saying something like this. Uh, If only I had a different job, well, I'd be a much better Christian. Or if only my wife or husband really understood me, well, then my spiritual life would really take off. Or perhaps an increasingly common one at the moment. If only I could relocate to Canada or the UK or Australia, then I really would be able to serve the Lord much more effectively. Well, the book of Daniel speaks powerfully to anyone who's tempted to think that the quality of our Christian lives is somehow dependent on our circumstances. So what then is the particular spiritual disease for which the book of Daniel is the perfect medicine? Well, in a word, it's doubt. Doubt is the disease for which the book of Daniel is the ideal treatment. But before we go any further, I think it is important to remember that in the Christian life, doubt is not always a bad thing. Uh, In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller's got a terrific comment on this, and I hope it will appear on the screen. He says this, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. So people who go blithely through life, too busy or indifferent, to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenceless, either against the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. So, friends, some doubt is to be expected in the Christian life. It's not always a bad thing. I mean, for example, which of us has not wondered at some point whether God really is in control of our personal circumstances or whether he really is still interested in us individually? I guess all of us have. And because we live by faith and not by sight, doubts like that are actually unavoidable from time to time. The question is, what do we actually do with those doubts when they creep into our minds? What do we do with them? Well, I want to suggest to you that if we read the book of Daniel prayerfully and carefully, we'll start to develop a different and much healthier perspective on all the things that perplex us and cause us grief. Because if Daniel was here in this room this morning, I think he would say something like this. The reason that I want you to read my book is because I want you to realize that true spirituality never depended on life being easy. So for the next few minutes, we're we're going to focus on just the first two verses of chapter 1. And I want us to consider together three of the most common symptoms of doubt. Because left untreated, these things can so easily cause us to put our relationship with Almighty God on the back burner. But I want to show you that in each case, God gives us the perfect medicine through the experiences of his servant Daniel. So let me read again for us those first two verses in Daniel chapter 1. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Okay, so what are the symptoms of doubt for which Daniel, the book of Daniel, is the perfect cure? Number one, this book is the perfect cure for complacency. What is complacency? Complacency is the result of untreated or unexamined doubt. And it usually starts very early in the Christian life. So when we're first converted, uh, we discover that certain things in our lives need to change. We don't like that. And so we begin to doubt God's good plans for us. Because we're worried about how these changes are going to impact our lifestyle and our relationships. Because you see, as new Christians, those things are still super important to us. They're more important to us, actually, than discovering the blessings that God has in store for us, if only we'll take him seriously. So what do we do? We ignore God's plans. We we push them out of our minds. And what happens? Well, nothing happens. There's no bolt of lightning. Uh, We don't immediately drop dead from a heart attack. Nothing happens. And so what happens is we conclude that God is actually a bit of a toothless tiger. We might still come to church because, after all, we want a bit of religion in our lives. But basically, God is an optional extra to be slotted in whenever it suits us. And so, in our thinking, we reduce the creator of the universe into a casual acquaintance. Uh, We're happy to think about him in church for an hour on Sunday morning, but that's all. That's complacency. Can I say that the book of Daniel warns us very seriously not to play games with God? Uh, In our reading from Habakkuk, we saw that God had warned Israel several years before the event that if they continued to ignore him, he would step in in judgment. And uh, when Habakkuk complained that God didn't seem to have noticed all the godlessness going on all around him, What did the Lord do? Well, he said this, quote, I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told, I'm raising up the Babylonians. And so here in Daniel chapter 1, it's uh, several years after Habakkuk's complaint. And Daniel, you see, understands that the siege of Jerusalem... And the catastrophe of the exile are the fulfillment of God's promise to act in judgment against people who were refusing to take him seriously. Uh, Daniel explains these events in the opening verse in such a way you can't actually miss the point. So come with me to the middle of verse 1 and notice where the emphasis lies. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, the word in the original language translated Lord is not the usual word for God in the Old Testament. The normal word for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Uh, That's his personal name. But here, the word is Adonai, meaning Sovereign Lord. And Daniel uses that name for God because he wants us to realise that God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the biggest big shots in the world. Vladimir Putin, Biden, Ramaphosa, you go on. With the list. As nations rise and fall, God is in control of it all. No corrupt leader remains in power one millisecond longer than God permits. And we're actually going to see a very striking example of that in the book in a couple of weeks' time. But the bigger lesson in these opening verses is that God is not the toothless tiger that so many people think that he is. Verses 1 and 2 remind us that where there is evil and disobedience and no repentance, in the end, God intervenes. Yes, God is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love, not wanting anybody to perish. But you see, the complacent churchgoer who refuses to bend the knee in heart, mind and will, who refuses to take God at his word, will in the end experience God's wrath. That's not me saying that. That's the message of the Bible. So if we read this book prayerfully and carefully, asking God to open our eyes... We're going to find that our complacency is swept away by a new sense of awe and reverence for the almighty sovereign God. Because Daniel's going to show us again and again that God really does rule over every detail in our lives. He simply won't allow us to reduce him to the level of a casual acquaintance that we meet Fleetingly for an hour on Sunday mornings. So that's the first thing. This book is the perfect cure for complacency. Secondly, this book is the perfect cure for despair. See, perhaps complacency isn't a problem for you. Uh, Maybe instead you're a thoughtful person. And uh, as you look around, you see a toxic culture that has got practically no room for God. And even more depressing than that, you see a weak church, which often appears to be making little or no impact. Very easy, isn't it, for us to see our situation in those terms, to give in to despair, and to say, well, perhaps we're so far gone as a society that God has simply taken his hand off us. He just isn't interested in us anymore. And uh, when I hear of Christians uh, leaving South Africa and going to try and find a better life overseas, I do sometimes wonder whether there isn't something of that in their thinking. Well, that was certainly in the mind of the Jewish exiles. Because elsewhere, the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar didn't just take Jehoiakim the king into exile. No, he also took 10,000 of the social elite as hostages, together with some of the articles used for worship in the temple. So he took those 10,000 people, and he took the stuff from the temple, and he marched off to Babylonia. Now, pay very close attention to me here. You'll notice in your Bibles that there is a footnote against the word Babylonia. Can you see it? it? should have a little A if you've got a church Bible there. And at the bottom of the page, we're given the alternative reading of the Hebrew word. It is the word Shinar. Now that word Shinar appears only four times in the Old Testament. And it is highly significant for our understanding of the message of this book. The first time we come across it is in Genesis chapter 11 and the account of the Tower of Babel. And I would like you please to keep a finger in Daniel and travel with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Famous story, I'm sure you've read it before. Let's just look at verses 1 through 4. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, pause on that. Why were they doing it? Very important. Follow me carefully from the text. So that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So, friends, in the Bible, Shinar is the place where humanity seeks to make a name for itself without reference to God. I wonder if you can therefore see what a crisis the exile was. You see, for a Jew to experience the violation of the temple, which represented the very presence of God with his people, and to be deported to a land where everybody's trying to make a name for for themselves without reference to God, well, that was a massive crisis. Raised all sorts of questions in the mind of the Jew about his history, his identity, his future, and the faithfulness of God to his promises. And so, you see, it's against that background of crisis and confusion that the book of Daniel was written. And because of the crisis that now faced the people of God, this book is written in a very particular way with a very particular purpose in mind. Now I need to go down a little side road just for a moment and remind us of an obvious but extremely important truth. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that when we're reading a document, it's important, isn't it, for us to understand the kind of document we're dealing with. So, for example, um, I don't imagine for one moment that you would read a legal contract in the same way that you would read a casual WhatsApp message from a friend. If you did, you'd very soon find yourself in hot water. And I'm equally sure that you don't read a poem, for example, in the same way that you read the minutes of a business meeting. Well, of course you don't. Because the type of document we're reading dictates the way that we read it. I'm sure you know that. Now, it's vital for us to understand right at the beginning of this series that Daniel is a special type of document. You see, in times of social upheaval throughout human history, it's fairly common to see new types of art and literature arise to meet the occasion. It happened here in South Africa, didn't it, during the years of protest against the apartheid movement, apartheid government. That protest was very often reflected in new styles of painting and poetry and music. And it had actually happened years before that among the slave population in the United States. And in exactly the same way, the crisis of the exile gave rise to a completely new type of Literature. The experts have given it a very strange name, and I don't want you to panic about it, so just take a deep breath. Let's get some oxygen into the brain. They gave it the word apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic writing. Now, I don't want you to panic about that. Um, The word apocalyptic simply means revelation. So the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible is another example. There are others. So what is apocalyptic writing? Let's think about that. I'll show you on the screen. Apocalyptic writing is used to answer two simple questions. Question one. In light of these dramatically new and uncomfortable circumstances what will God do next second question how does God want his people to respond today and what gives an apocalypse its name is that the fact is the fact that the revelation the answer to those two questions Comes from God Himself. He, He answers those questions through historical events, through dreams, and through visions. So the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are the account of Daniel and his friends in the Babylonian court. Those chapters are describing the very uncomfortable circumstances experienced by the people of God. They're also, of course, amongst the best-known stories in the entire Bible. The Kingdom Kids know them backwards already, and we're looking forward to some wonderful dramas from them in the coming weeks. Chapters 7 to 12 are a totally different ballgame. They are apocalyptic writing. They are revelations from God through visions and dreams giving us a glimpse of the future so that the people of God will know how to live in their new and uncomfortable situation today. Now friends, that is why the book of Daniel speaks to you and me this morning. Because I don't know whether you've noticed but you and I are living today in a culture that is decidedly Babylonian. You see, we find Babylon all over social media. Why do I say that? Because social media is the place people go to to make a name for themselves without reference to God. They project the Im- an image of themselves They want the rest of the world to see There's no mention of God. Well, that's Babylon. We find Babylon in our schools, where children are indoctrinated into a worldview that exalts man and has absolutely no room for God. We find Babylon in the boardroom, where people are seeking to make a name for themselves not by acknowledging the God who gave them the gifts that put them there, but through the exercise of human power and wisdom and intrigue. And sadly, we even see Babylonian culture in churches where particular leaders refuse to take God at his word. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, There's absolutely nothing wrong with social media, boardrooms and schools in themselves. Absolutely nothing. But when those things become temples, where people go to find identity and meaning apart from God, well, that's a different thing altogether. That is Babylonian, and God hates it. But, of course, that's our world, isn't it? And the question raised in the book of Daniel is how are the people of God supposed to live in a culture that exalts human human beings in the place of the God who made them? The answer that God gives is that while God's people might be in hostile territory for a short time now, The future couldn't possibly be more different. Keep a finger in Daniel 1, come to the end of the book, Daniel chapter 12. Let me hear those pages turning. Daniel chapter 12, last chapter of the book. See, right at the end of the book, Daniel is given a stunning vision of what's going to happen right at the end of human history. Come with me to the middle of verse 1. See, This is what Almighty God says is going to happen at the end of time. So fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I love that passage. We're going to revisit it again at the end of the series. But this morning I simply want you to notice that the movement in the book of Daniel is from God's people being in captivity in a toxic culture in chapter 1 to God's people being raised to everlasting life in chapter 12. And the book of Daniel, you see, is a cure for despair. Because while we are living in perplexing and difficult circumstances today, yes we are, God wants us to know that the future is going to be wonderfully different. And if we let the message of Daniel really sink in, we'll find that instead of despair, we're filled with hope and confidence. Well, come back to chapter 1. Because thirdly and lastly, This book is the perfect cure for unbelief. Verse 2 tells us that the crisis facing the people of God wasn't simply coming to terms with the consequences of their disobedience, not that. And it wasn't simply that they found themselves in a toxic culture. No. The real crisis was that it seemed to them that God himself had been defeated. see, we've already seen, haven't we, that Nebuchadnezzar didn't simply take the king and his court off to Babylon. No, he also raided the temple and took some of the holy articles and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now think about that. A pagan king pillages the place which stood for the presence of God with his people. And the crisis for the people of God is that it seems as if God himself has been defeated. Now friends, that is so like us, isn't it? And we look at our world sometimes from a purely human point of view, and it does sometimes seem, doesn't it, ...as if God's been defeated. I mean, immorality and corruption are everywhere. Goodness and righteousness are extremely hard to find. And in those circumstances, the immediate temptation is to, well, stop believing and blend into the culture. But the book of Daniel encourages you and I to look behind the scenes and see that despite all appearances to the contrary, God is very much in control. Because it was God who delivered the victory to Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't it? So as I close this morning, let me leave you with two striking features of the book. Uh, You can think about their significance in the home groups this coming week. The first is that the book of Daniel was written in two different languages. Chapter 1 and chapters 8 to 12 were written in Hebrew. Uh, That was the language of the Jewish people. But chapters 2 to 7 were written in Aramaic. And Aramaic was the common language of the ancient world. Everyone spoke Aramaic. It was the language of commerce and culture in much the same way that English is today. And that's, you see, because the message of this book was intended not just for Israel in exile, no, but for everybody. God wanted the whole world to read this book. Second feature. Verse 2 contains the last reference to a merely human king over Israel. King Jehoiakim is mentioned twice in the first two verses. And after verse 2, there is no other reference to a human king of Israel in the rest of the book. But right in the very middle of the book, Daniel introduces us to someone else. He's a different king. The writers of the New Testament were in absolutely no doubt as to who it is. And so before I pray, won't you please turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I'll read from verse 13. Daniel 7 verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed and 600 years after those words were written Jesus, Jesus Christ quotes from that passage and he says Daniel was talking about me let's pray Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us that you are always in sovereign control. Please forgive us for the times when we've been tempted to give in to the kingdoms of this world with their crazy, godless agenda. And in all the perplexity of life, please help us to keep our eyes on King Jesus whose kingdom is the only kingdom that will outlast the world. For it is in his name we ask it. Amen.